welcome to The Nest Podcast, a place where we have down-to-earth, uplifting conversations about women's health, healing, our inherent feminine wisdom, and the magic that happens when we decide to be the hero of our life and not the victim of it. Here we'll explore a wide range of topics, from holistic nutrition and metabolic health and balancing your hormones, to mind-body medicine and how intuition, spirituality, and consciousness are revolutionizing health and healing. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Emily Lipinski. Emily is a naturopathic doctor who's passionate about helping others heal naturally. Emily was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroid disease, but after using natural therapies and changes in diet and lifestyle, she has dramatically improved her health and has effectively balanced her hormones. In this episode, Emily and I dive into that very topic. We cover common root causes of hormonal imbalances and offer doable solutions for any woman who's interested in restoring hormonal harmony. So sit back, open your heart and mind, and get ready for a dose of inspiration to motivate you on your healing journey. Let's dive in. Hi, Emily. Hi, Mariska. How's it going? I'm great. How are you? Good. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. I've had a lot of requests, actually, to talk about this, and a lot of women who want to know how they can balance their hormones. What does that even mean? What are some easy, simple things that they can do starting today? So yeah, so I'm excited to jump into this topic because I know this is something that we both do, not only for ourselves, but with patients on the regular. Before we dive in though, I just want to give a bit of a disclaimer that Emily and I are not giving you medical advice. Uh, This is not to substitute medical advice from your practitioners that you see, but rather we are two naturopathic doctors getting together, having a discussion and sharing information of what we found effective in our practices or find effective in our practices and also personally for our own health and well-being. So with that said, let's dive in. I don't know about you, but I feel like this topic of quote unquote, balancing our hormones has almost become a bit of, um, I don't know, like this trendy thing, like this phrase that people use on social media or they're like, oh, I just need to balance my hormones or, or I'm balancing my hormones. And I think the first place to start is like, what do we actually mean when we're talking about balancing our hormones? Cause I think a lot of people, um, you know, think that mainly that just pertains to sex hormones, like estrogen and progesterone. However, it's a much broader concept. Um, So I thought, let's start by just diving into like, what does it actually mean to balance our hormones? So if you want to give a go, and then I'll jump in. Well, I, when I look at hormones, I think you and I have spoken about this a lot. There's one kind of the hormone triangle um, that involves the, the thyroid gland, which I look at so much in my practice because I do focus so much on the thyroid in my practice, but the thyroid hormone, which is the thyroid gland producing thyroid hormones located in your neck is in constant communication with the adrenal glands. So those are the glands that respond to stress. So they put out cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and then also the sex hormones, as you mentioned. So Mm -hmm. all of those are in constant communication, meaning if you're very stressed, it could, impact your estrogen and progesterone, which could impact your menstrual cycle, and then also your thyroid gland. But then if we step back even greater, and you know, there's these other hormones, which also come into play, especially uh, insulin. So regulating blood sugar levels too, which go hand in hand with this other triangle. So you've got not just that special kind of main triangle that I focus on, but then you've got your glucose and your insulin levels that we also have to look at. Yeah. Where, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I'm going to back it up just a little bit more. 
So yes, and I want to get back to that idea of there being like a triangle and like, you know, the thyroid, the adrenals and the ovaries, like, you know, how those are all related and working, basically working synergistically together. However, to back it up even further and just explain to people, like when we're talking about hormones, what we're talking about are our chemical messengers that are produced by glands and tissues and different organs of the body that are basically responsible for all the different functions <laughs> that we're like, whether it's, you know, like keeping our body temperature uh, steady, metabolism, keeping our menstrual cycles going, uh, our stress response, immunity, like there's like so many different hormones and it's, it's basically referred to as our endocrine system. And there are major glands of the endocrine system, the hypothalamus, pituitary, thyroid, et cetera, that are responsible for producing these chemical messengers. And again, we're not just talking about estrogen and progesterone. We're talking about cortisol. We're talking about testosterone. We're talking about, you know, insulin. We're talking about like ghrelin and like, there's so many. So again, when we're talking about balancing our hormones, we're talking about a whole system within the body and what we see as practitioners, our people will come to us with symptoms and we use those symptoms to kind of dig deeper and investigate and see out of this endocrine system, where are things out of balance? Right. The other point I want to make before we go back to the, um, you know, the relationship between thyroid and adrenals and everything is I also want to point out that we never balance our hormones. We assist the body in that process. So the body as it's so incredibly amazing and has this innate intelligence and it is constantly at every moment of the day working to balance, like to keep itself in homeostasis. So when we talk about balancing our hormones, we're not the ones doing the balancing. The body is already like, it's already innately wired to go back to a set point to create that balance. And as practitioners, what we do is we come alongside respecting the, that innate process and that innate intelligence within the body. And we come along and we work synergistically with that. So, and I think that's an important point to make because so many people have this perception. And I think it's because we've been, you know, conditioned to believe that our bodies like are kind of like, we have to work against them <laughs> or, right. you know, or they're, that they're working against us. Sorry. And, you know, like we have to somehow like manhandle <laughs> the body and manipulate it back into line. And that's a false perception. And so when we're talking about balancing hormones, it's really about respecting the fact that our body has an innate intelligence. It knows what it's doing and it's constantly working daily at, you know, balancing our hormones, detoxing, like keeping us alive. <laughs> it's constant yeah. to do that. It's always healing. We are always healing every moment of every day. And our job, I often think of it as like a river flowing and it's like, you know, like that river flowing is the vise. It's like the natural vitality and healing force within each one of us. And then, you know, disease happens when there's like boulders or like things that get in the way of that inflow of that flow. It like impedes the flow. And so our job, I feel as practitioners is to identify the boulders, is to identify the obstacles to cure. That's what we, how we refer to it in naturopathic medicine is where are the obstacles? Where are the boulders that are in the way that are impeding the flow, that are impeding the body's ability to do this natural thing AKA healing. 
And so coming alongside, and we'll talk about some of these boulders here today and what people can do to kind of begin to remove them. But yeah, like that's kind of how I see healing in general is our job is to come alongside and kind of remove these obstacles to cure so the body can do what it's innately programmed to do. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it. I often say to my patients too, it's, you know, sometimes we don't think about it like that, but even if we cut our finger, uh, we don't have to think about or do anything, you know, within a few days that cut is often gone. You know, of course, as long as it's not too deep. consciously feeling it. (laughs) That's right. Your body's doing it. And that's something that we can actually see and visualize. And everybody's cut their finger at one point in in time. And they know that the body just naturally heals itself up. And it's the same with hormones or anything going on inside the body's going to do it. But just like you said, sometimes we need to remove those boulders or support the system in different ways to allow it to free flow beautifully and harmoniously again. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the number one difference with naturopathic medicine versus other, you know, I would say conventional medicine. (laughs) That's like the difference. Like we work with the natural innate intelligence of the body, we work with the healing powers of nature, right? We don't come in we're not trying to dominate. We're actually working with, we're coming alongside and working synergistically. And one of the things, this is actually a good time to point this out. And again, I'm not trying to bash conventional medicine. I'm just pointing out differences because I think a lot of people have no idea what naturopathic doctors do. Yeah. So we work with the healing powers of nature. We come alongside the body working with it. However, one of the things I think is really important to point out, especially with this discussion of balancing hormones is, and we'll talk about this in more detail here in a minute, but this idea of the tools that we have in our toolbox to do this, right? Again, we respect the healing powers of nature. We're going to talk about, you know, that in a minute and the more natural ways that we approach this idea of balancing hormones. Um, But I think it's important to point out to people, you know, conventional medicine really kind of treats it as like a one size fits all. So if you have a woman that comes into, you know, a doctor's office, maybe she has PCOS, like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Maybe she has really painful periods. Maybe she has acne, whatever it may be. Oftentimes they're limited in the tools that they have to quote unquote balance hormones. So they're giving things like the birth control pill, mainly that's like the main thing that I see happening um, often or other like pharmaceutical drugs. um, And that's kind of it. And so the approach that we are presenting here today and that we do in our practices um, has a much greater, I would say bandwidth. Like we have a greater bandwidth of of tools that we bring to the table. And I, I like to think of it as like a hierarchy Um, If you think of like a pyramid and there's different like layers to the pyramid and like the top being, you know, really intense interventions, the bottom being lifestyle. And like on that bottom pyramid, like these are the things that we can do ourselves, like, you know, managing stress and uh, getting good sleep and eating well and exercise and like all of these, they're, they're interventions that aren't intense, right? They're just like our daily activities, but they have, it's the basis it's like it the foundation and, and it it's has a huge impact. Exactly. Yeah. And then as you move up, you go to, you know, like that's when you like the, uh, uh, you go up in the intervention. So it'd be like, you know, that's when you bring in your herbs or your supplements or acupuncture or things like that. And then you go up when it's necessary. Cause there's a time and a place for everything. Again, I'm not bashing conventional medicine. It's just that 
often people are trained to jump there, to jump to the medications when there's a whole half of the pyramid underneath that they could do first. So yeah, so like after you do more gentle interventions, uh, and again, I want to point out gentle doesn't mean not effective, right? Gentle just means that we're not going in and trying to manhandle the body. We're working with it. Yeah. So there's like, you know, like the pill, bioidentical hormones, that sort of thing. And then you get to like really intense interventions, like chemo surgery and those things. So I like to think of it almost like this triangle with like different, um, like it's a hierarchy of interventions. And so today what we want to present is, you know, there's a lot on the bottom of that pyramid that we have control over. Like that everyone has control over on a daily basis of what they are doing and how they are living their lives that has, I think it's the foundation of health and has a tremendous impact on our hormones. So with all that said, <laughs> let's jump back to this idea of, you know, things being interrelated within the body, like the different glands. And I know, Em, like you, you have a, a focus on thyroid. You've written a book all about it. Um, but again, it's not just the thyroid, right? Cause the thyroid is related to so many other organs within the endocrine system and the body. And well, you know, most of the time when someone has a thyroid issue nowadays, like over 90% of the time, it's actually not the thyroid at all. That's the problem. It's the body attacking itself. So it's a different reason that, and it's presenting in thyroid dysfunction, but we, in any hormone, you know, there's so much interrelatedness in what's going on. Um, and I know I've spoken to many other colleagues that find, <clears throat> you know, let alone the patients, uh, there's a lot of co- doctors and our colleagues that are saying, you know, treating hormones and looking at hormone balance can be really intricate and can be, you know, take a lot of time. And, and it's like difficult to look at it because there's so many nuances. But again, like you say, it's step back. Let's look at that baseline of and kind of try and see the main interactions so that we can look at okay is it just thyroid or is it also the stress and the adrenal glands is it also the period and so forth yeah exactly i think there's an important point there that i i want to flesh out a little bit further which is you know this idea that it's it's very intricate however at the same time it's also so simple Right. And, and like, there's so much to, you know, doing the labs and reading them and knowing how these systems works. And that's what we're trained to do. And yeah, it can be very, very complicated um, when you're looking at all the different functions and hormones and all the different systems. But at the same time, like when we go back to how we live our daily lives and what's causing this hormonal imbalance to begin with, that's when we can really simplify things and look at like, okay, let's look at these you know, four elements or these four pillars or whatever it is like, or five that we're going to cover here today of things that people can start with. They don't need to worry about agonizing over labs. That's what we do. (laughs) Uh, It's more like looking at their lives and being like, okay, where might, like, what are the boulders? What are the boulders that are in the way? And what can I do? Like, let's first of all, recognize where they are, what they are, and then how can I begin to like move them out of the way? And then- go in search of someone like you or myself, who this is what we do for a living. We've been trained to do this, to identify those boulders and how we remove them. And then how we come in and support the body in what it's trained to do anyways. Okay. So one of the things I think before we get into all the amazing solutions, let's first talk about the causes, like how do the boulders get there to begin with? 
and uh, what are some of these boulders? So the first and foremost thing that I think is the leading cause of hormonal imbalance is stress. Yeah, I would, I would probably agree. I think it's kind of, for me, it's like a head to head, uh, maybe race. I'd say it's stress and then probably environmental contaminants. Yes. Um, And I I would actually, yeah. I, I, from what I see, I, I think stress for sure, but I'd say like the need to detoxify um, ourselves from what we just naturally are exposed to and our body can do it. We just need to give the supports, but the exposure to these things, um, you know, that mimic hormones in our body is like yeah. far reaching, I'd say. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Can you, ex- before I go in, oh, actually, you know what, let me define let's just find this first. Like as, as, cause when I say stress, I don't just mean like you're upset that someone didn't take out the garbage <laughs> or yeah. stress from work. Like when I'm talking about stress, I'm talking about environmental stressors, yeah. like what you were just saying, M. And I want to yeah. talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Cause I think that's super important. Yeah. So environmental stressors, emotional stressors, such as like not being able to relax negativity, overwhelm, self-doubt, self-criticism, like all these negative beliefs or negative mindset. Cause that keeps us at like lower level vibration, which is very stressful for the body, uh, toxic relationships, porous boundaries, uh, holding onto grudges, trauma, uh, not being able to like, let things go. And then you have your physical stressor, uh, stressors, you know, too much or too little exercise, too little sleep, rest, malnourishment. So like foods that are highly processed and that goes into a bit of what you're talking about with environmental stressors. Yes. And like, just like what we're putting into and what we're putting onto our bodies yeah. and how like that's creating stress because our body's having to deal with these toxins, like this toxic load, chronic infections. That's a big one. You and I both talked yeah. about this a lot, like with each other in conversation, uh, fasting. I want to talk about fasting today with you, uh, like low blood sugar that puts a huge stress on our bodies and okay. produces a lot of cortisol burnout, the constant, like on the go lifestyle that we have, like the nonstop living, the hustling. And yeah. So just going back to, so when I talk about stress, that's what I'm talking about. And you, you know, let's go back to this, the environmental toxins and flesh that out a bit. So people get an idea of like what we mean, because it's not just your mascara, (laughs) you know, and choosing like uh, cleaner, like beauty products. Yeah. Yeah. So in the last even, you know, 30 to 40 years, the world has produced and put out hundreds of chemicals um, for different uses, primarily in industrial uses, but also for makeup and body care and so forth. And a lot of these chemicals have actually never been adequately tested for safety. And they're put into our body care products to make them stay better on our skin, stay longer, look better, or, you know, into our shampoo. So the shampoo froths up a lot, but when we dive deeper and it's starting to come out now, some of the chemicals that were once allowed in some of these beauty care products or on our food via pesticides are no longer allowed because, you know, the research was done after the fact that they went to market and been in use for a long time. And then someone realized, oh, actually they're not beneficial. They actually could be harmful. And for whatever reason, a lot of these chemicals seem to disrupt the endocrine system. Um, So let's pull them back and we can no longer have them for you. So 
Yeah, it's not just the mascara, but it's essentially what we breathe, what we're eating. A lot of it is what's in our water. That's a big one too, especially with city water. Um, you and I both went to school in Toronto. And if you look at the city of Toronto, they do water data every few months and you can pull it up on the internet as you can in most North American cities. You can actually look at all the chemicals they find in our water that we're drinking. And some of them, a lot of them actually, what's really interesting and fascinating is there's particles of the birth control pill and Tylenol and Advil and other common antidepressants um, and antimicrobial uh, drugs that we urinate out. Some, a lot of it gets filtered, but it can still be in very, very small amounts in our drinking water. So our drinking water is safe for consumption. It's not going to kill us, but it's really defining what's safe for us. We're wanting obviously to thrive and a lot of public health, um, you know, their mandate is to keep the population alive, to keep them at like- a Not general, necessarily thriving. <laughs> that's right. Public health, I've actually had a conversation with a public health official in Ontario, and they said, that's not our mandate. We're not doing something to make a person thrive. We're doing something to keep the population alive. And so that's a huge defining factor. And once you really realize that, it's really up to you, the individual, to kind of decide, okay, I need to take responsibility for myself. I need to look at my food. I need to look at my water, my beauty care products to see if there's things in there that could be making me sick or making me not thrive or not, you know, are those my boulders, as you say, to remove that I could, you know, support my body better and functioning at its best. A hundred percent. I agree with you. And I also think, you know, so, so the way that this, the way that these things interact and disrupt is because they just for the people listening is they, we call them like pseudoestrogens and yeah. They mimic, they mimic hormones in our body, right? So they'll, they'll look similar or act similarly to estrogen or testosterone or whatever. Um, and that's how they wreak havoc because the body then can't tell the difference necessarily, or they're binding to receptors and then pushing these pathways or, or causing the pathways to malfunction. So that's, that's how like we call them endocrine disruptors because that's basically what they're doing. They're coming in and they're disrupting the endocrine system and the natural flow and the balance. So Emily, what would you say for someone who's listening to this and you know, they're like, okay, well, what do I start with? I would, as I say to my patients, you know, it's, it's sometimes it can seem overwhelming and it's a little bit more individual. I, cause if you do something individually, you're going to have better success. So it's, where are you willing to change? Some people are like, I'm willing to do all of it. I just want to go for it. Some people, you know, the makeup or beauty care piece is really difficult because they're like, that's, I love that. I feel good about myself when I go out. I love this makeup. You know, it's like, okay, well, let's, let's first look at your water. So it's really up to the individual, but the areas that need to be looked up are the water using some sort of really good filtration system. And it can be, you know, Brita is the one that most people go to. That's not bad. It can be a starting point. If you want to, you know, bring out the big guns, reverse osmosis does. And then we put everything out. Exactly. But that's not a starting point for some people. It's more expensive. Yeah. It can be, you know, a big undertaking. So even using something like a Brita filter, Acropure, there's something also called Acrotrue, which is a, a countertop reverse osmosis system. You can get on Amazon. It's around $500. So it's also not an easy entry point for some people, but that is, you know, the best to do reverse osmosis. 
then you know you want to look at your foods buying organic as much as possible especially from the dirty dozen i think we've talked about that dirty dozen clean 15 before right mm -hmm. you know you i know you do that i know you yeah the environmental working group. yes yeah yeah um so some of the people sorry i didn't read. i was gonna say for people who want to know what those are you can look it up the environmental working group.org is it .org or .com just look up environmental group and you'll see like the list the updated list there and these are the foods that are the most highly sprayed with yes. like glyphosate and all the other um pesticides yeah. that are havoc yeah yeah, and some of the top ones are almost always now are apples, berries, greens. Those are usually, you know, the ones that you want to be for sure. And then I know you and I agree our meat dairy is really important for us too. And, you know, telling our patients because with dairy and meat, you know, hormones still can be given to animals in certain parts of the world. Um, and the antibiotics that uh, animals do get fed can, are a lot higher. So like, let's say you take a cow, the approved amount of antibiotics can be like 14 times what's approved for an, a human, but then we eat that. So we're not taking the antibiotic ourselves, but we're eating the meat that's just may, potentially recently had the antibiotic treatment. So then we go on to a beauty care products. There's also something also by the environmental working group called Skin Deep. And so you can actually look up your beauty product to see if it has a high amount of chemicals or not in it. So, you know, going to that as well, and then looking at what you wash your house with, what you wash your sheets with, your clothes with, using something natural, no scent. Yeah. You know, e even some people make their own with just baking soda and vinegar, but these natural detergents are really easy also to get on Amazon or on different um, online avenues that are focused on health and wellness. And then looking at also the air you breathe. So being potentially having um, air filters in your house, if need be, even just opening your windows more and getting fresh air in can also be really helpful to, to recirculate the air and dissipate some of those um, toxins and having house plants, ironically, super simple can also help purify your air. Yeah, I love it. I have so many plants in my house. <laughs> But so one of the things I want to point out, because this is a lot of amazing information, but I want to point out to people like this is a process. You don't have to it go is. do all this tomorrow. Um, again, we're all individuals and we all have different, um, I would say, tolerances to, you know, to toxin loads. I know myself, I'm, I'm really sensitive and uh, like I, like I walk into a store like Canadian Tire or like any of those um, hardware stores and it almost knocks me down on my yeah. knees. Just the smells, like I have a lot of environmental sensitivities. So, you know, for myself, I didn't do all of this overnight. It was a process and I did it over time in ways that worked for me and my family. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, you're just the first thing and this is already seeming like a lot, like just you know, take a deep breath and you just do what you can as you can. And yeah. again, we have to have a tremendous faith like our in our bodies and their capacity to heal and to yeah. deal with these toxins. Like the other thing I wanted to say is the good news, like, yes, we want to watch out for all of these things, but the good news is there's also a lot of amazing things that we can do to assist the body in relieving the toxin load, right? There's infrared saunas, there's things like zeolite and other binders that we use in our practice that we prescribe to people 
that help the body and assist it to go in and they're like little sponges and just kind of like soak up these things. It's again, supporting these pathways of detoxification so that the body, because the body's detoxing 24 seven, right? Um, So I love when like people say, I'm going to do a detox. I'm like, well, actually what you're doing is you're just having a focused amount of time to support those systems of detoxification because you're detoxing daily. But yeah, like doing or taking, uh, you know, like whether it's a month or a week or whatever, um, where you help the body and you quote unquote, do a detox or you do a cleanse. Um, I want (laughs) to say a disclaimer there too, because there's a lot of, that's a trend and there's a lot of garbage out there that are really just diuretics and laxatives. So I would do something like that with a practitioner, because again, you want to make sure that you're eliminating, like that you're going um, like to the bathroom um, regularly before you start doing any of that stuff. Um, Because then what you can do is just stir everything up. It's like a muddy puddle, but you're not eliminating. And then you get what we call hepato reuptake um, where your body just takes back all those, takes back up all of those uh, toxins that you've just stirred up. So I think, you know, and perhaps we should do like a whole other episode M on detoxification. I yes. think it's, but just a warning, like there's a lot of like in the box detoxes out there. I don't recommend that. I, I recommend like going to a, a qualified practitioner who knows what they're doing so that they can make sure that, you know, your pathways of elimination and detoxification are, are being supported and open so that you can do this in a way that works for you and what's needed for your body. But there's yeah. a lot of amazing things out there, right? So yes, there's a lot of pollutants and you know toxins. However, we also have incredible ways of supporting the body to eliminate them. Absolutely, and I think we'll get we'll move on to stress, and I'm sure circadian rhythm and so forth in a moment. But I just say for listeners that say, okay, like if you know with some of these diet and lifestyle interventions, where would I start, or what would I need to focus on for first? I'd say for hormone balance, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but if someone's tuning in and they have, you know, endometriosis or fibroids or very heavy painful periods with headaches, those are all signs that they have excess estrogen in the body. So not that the other dietary lifestyles wouldn't be beneficial, but definitely those patients would need to most likely focus on detoxification. Yeah, 100%. And actually you raised a good point. I wanted to say like these symptoms that arise, whether it's, you know, heavy, painful periods, whether it's endometriosis, whether it's weight gain or weight loss, all these things, it, it's your body speaking to you. Like our body just not, not doing these things to just like wreck our lives, <laughs> upset us. Yeah. They're messages from the body. And so to be, to listen like fatigue, even like I find it's so interesting, especially with women, you know, we'll just like push aside the messages, like we won't listen, they get louder and louder. It's like, if you won't listen when the the little tiny pebble is thrown, well, you'll listen when there's a brick (laughs) that's thrown your way, right? So it may start as a little bit of fatigue and some mild cramping, but then it gets to like full-blown, like incapacitated when you have your menstrual cycle or PMS, that's just, you know, raging. Um, You know, it's, it's listening to those subtle whispers because the body is always communicating. It's always trying to say to us like, oh, hey, there's a little imbalance here. Hence, here's this symptom. The symptom yeah. is like, dig here. There's something off here. 
And so it's going in and discovering again, like what those boulders are, like what are this, these obstacles that are in the way of, that's impeding the flow of health and well-being. Um, yeah, cool. I feel like we definitely covered the environmental stuff. I want to, you know, so if we think about some of the other stressors, again, we can't eliminate stress. I want to make this point um, and, you know, really, I think this is a really important thing to say, which is we can't eliminate stress. However, we can manage it. And what managing stress to me means is, again, I can't, I can't control what's happening in my external environment, but I can do my best to manage my internal environment. So I can, you know, the stressors may be happening, but I can become more resilient to them. Meaning I can go through the stress and stress is we need it, right? It's just a natural part of life. There's good stress, there's bad stress. And, but staying in that state of fight or flight chronically is that's where the issue comes, right? That's where the issues, that's where the disease comes from. But if we know how to bring the body from or mind, you know, from that state of fight or flight back to rest and digest. So from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic state, um, with different techniques or different, you know, lifestyle habits, that is how we manage stress. So it's bringing ourselves back to center, grounding ourselves after a period of stress. So again, I might have a car accident. There's nothing I, you know, like it was an accident. There's nothing I could have done to prevent that. It happened. However, what I do afterwards to help my body mitigate that stress and, and dissolve it and bring myself back to center into a parasympathetic state That is what we're talking about when we're talking about managing stress. And that is how we build resiliency. So I think resiliency is the, is the answer, right? Yes. On all fronts, like, you know, whether we're talking about the environmental toxins, we're helping our body become more resilient to them. So we're doing all these things to help shed the toxins or detoxify. Uh, It's the same thing with emotional stress or the physical stressors, right? Um, It's helping the body become more resilient. I know in my life, what I find helpful with managing stress, especially emotional stress is I have certain things that I do uh, on a regular basis that help me come back to center. Exercise is one. So I find moving my body, like working out that adrenaline, that cortisol shaking is a big one for people. I know that might sound a bit funny, but it's what animals do in the wild. Like if you've, I've seen any of those nature videos, like, you know, you know, have like a young Impala running from a lion. (laughs) stops it will shake and it's its way of like re it's like regulating its nervous system right like moving cortisol out of the blood and the adrenaline out of the blood so yeah movement like going for a walk and i'm not talking about high intensity exercise uh, because that could actually make it worse but yeah i'm talking about like going for a walk or just doing movement that feels good breathing like deep breathing again like bringing the body back to center with breath yeah um, engaging that, you know, parasympathetic response, meditation, yoga is a big one for some people. And then I find also touch physical touch, really important, like getting a hug, you know, like think about like a little kid who's crying and they're upset and they come to you, you give them a big hug, you rub their back. Like there, there's something to that, right? Like it's the oxytocin. It's like all of the neurotransmitters that induce a calming effect. Touch is huge. It makes us feel held. It makes us feel safe pleasure, you know, touch is part of that, but just anything that helps, like, again, once you've cried, done all the things (laughs) or done what you need to do to express and feel the emotion, it's then, you know, like, what can you do to come back to center and, and, you know, 
induce pleasure or, or a calming state. What else do you do, Em? Being in nature is a big one for me. Yeah. And I know that's true for all animals. Our natural habitat is nature. And so when we look at what stresses humans, you know, the, the indoor lights and just being indoors all day is actually can be stressful to the human body. We have studies showing that it increases our cortisol. And re- interesting, they, a group of scientists who were, had a real interest in stress put in um, a big office building, just pictures of nature. And they were taking um, the subject's cortisol levels. And actually when the subject just looked at the picture of green and the trees and heard the running water from a stream, like it was a fake stream that had been put into the office building, their cortisol levels went way down. So that's just all, you know, fake things in the office building, but we can actually do the same thing by just getting out and looking at the clouds at lunchtime, or even if you work down in the city or something, again, like going for a walk and looking at the trees or looking at the pigeons, they're still birds, they're still nature, they're still part of like the natural habitat. So that's a big, a big one for me. And then the other thing I think I'd touch on is when I ask people what they do for stress relief, I'd say the number one response is Netflix. I don't know if you get that too, that that's a huge, like watching TV. And I think that that is not bad. I get it. I, you know, I'm not a huge TV watcher, but I know when I'm not feeling well, or I want some alone time, finding a good movie or a show can be really relaxing. But I think that that's kind of edged over into too much. And it takes away from other some of the other really deeply nourishing de-stressors like the movement, getting outside, the touch, the connection with others, using Netflix for a little bit of time or, you know, other forms of TV, what, what have you, is totally fine. But I think there has to be some sort of cap saying like that's a that's a de-stressor, but it doesn't get in to the juicy, deep stuff to really recalibrate the body like exercise would. Yeah. So with this whole thing of Netflix, um, one of the things I think is really important, like you said, it may be an okay tool to use, uh, at the time, you know, like little bits. Sure. But I think, you know, we, we also want to point out that there's a difference, uh, between abusing something like that, where we can numb out and it decreases our capacity to then navigate, you know, stressors, uh, ourselves in a more meaningful way. That's actually getting at the root cause of that stressor. Um, you know, whether it's, um, dysfunctional relationship or boundaries that need to be asserted or, you know, like just how we manage stress. So I think there's a fine line to be walked with things like Netflix and alcohol. And we just want to be careful that they don't become crutches or, or, you know, move into that category or the territory of addiction, because the goal is not just to you know, recover from stress. It's also, and, and you know, like uh, recalibrate the body and, and ground ourselves and create resiliency. But part of that resiliency is having the capacity to navigate these stressors, but also looking at the root cause of them. It's not just avoidance, right? It's not like just avoidance, or I should say it's not avoidance, but it's recalibration, recovery, and if possible, getting to the root cause and eliminating the stressors where possible. And if we can't eliminate, then we just have to be careful that we're not palliating or numbing ourselves out, but we're still moving through and feeling our emotions 
and uh, supporting the body. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 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 Cool. And All I right. think I should mention, I'll just add on that briefly. Sometimes when we do these things like exercise, get in nature, it allows us to um, know our truths, to to come to the information that we actually need for that time. Whereas if we're using more numbing agents, we can't really hear or feel or see that truth as much. A hundred percent. That's such a good point. Yeah. Because if you are relying on an external force or external, you know, like the television or whatever to help me take my, like, if I'm using it to help me take my mind off something, then I'm not actually going to be going inward and listening to the wisdom that my intuition has to offer in that moment. Am I That's right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's such a good point. Em. Um, yeah. So let's move on to sleep. So when it comes to sleep and the need for good quality sleep to keep hormones in balance, Yes. Um, you know, obviously then the other side of that is a lack of sleep or not getting that good quality sleep is going to then lead to hormonal, hormonal imbalances. Sometimes though, it's a hormonal imbalance that can keep us from getting that quality sleep. And yes. so yes. when we're talking about hormones, you know, an important sleep hormone is melatonin and what a lot of people, I'm sure people have heard of melatonin, but what a lot of people may not know is that it's the interplay and the balance between cortisol and melatonin. They like, they're the two hormones that regulate our sleep and wake cycles, right? Like cortisol rising in the morning is what wakes us up. We have what we call a cortisol curve. It's highest, you know, mid morning around 10 AM. And then it slowly declines, giving people a bit of that you know, fatigue that they may experience in the afternoon, but it's like, you know, that natural siesta time of the day, it rises again a little bit, uh, not as high, but it still rises around four or five o'clock, get that second wind. And then it steadily declines throughout the evening as it's supposed to, because we're supposed to be like calming down and moving into our evening and preparing for sleep. And as cortisol comes down, melatonin is slowly coming up. And melatonin is what facilitates our sleep cycles. That balance, it's an opposition really between cortisol and melatonin, but that, you know, the balance between them can get thrown off when we're working out too much, like too hard before bed, or we're, you know, <laughs> replying to stressful emails um, or, or, you know, too much blue light can suppress the melatonin. Uh, production and secretion. And then that can throw off our ability to get that good night's rest. Absolutely. Do you have anything you want to add to that before we move on? Um, to yeah. like, to get I'd say the other things that really help support melatonin is sleeping in a really dark room. And that's something that some of my patients have told me over the years that to tune out or to relax, they put the TV on in their bedroom and then they fall asleep with it. And that's one of the worst things we can do to help to, you know, encourage our melatonin to go up. It, it really blunts the way the melatonin will rise. The other thing is if people have floodlights outside their house or bright lights that are shining into the windows, even if your eyes are closed, the body will still sense that there's light and that will also interfere with the melatonin production. So what people can do to support the melatonin production is like you say, like not uh, exercise too close to bedtime, have more things to wind them down. So maybe gentle stretches or yoga, deep breathing before bedtime, great. But going to the gym, especially under bright lights, not great, right? Yeah. Um, eating too close to bedtime. I don't know how you feel about this. We haven't talked about this because there's like, 
there's two theories of thought. I'd say probably not having a huge meal would not be, would be not ideal. Potentially mm-hmm. having a little snack, a little bit of carbohydrate might be beneficial. Um, and we'll probably talk about that in fasting in a few. Yeah, a few I definitely minutes. want to talk about that because there, I definitely want to talk about that because there is, if you have issues where you're waking up at night, it could yeah. be because of liver glycogen and then a snack before bed can help with that. But yeah, exactly. we'll just go back to that. Yeah. And then making sure that you have, you're dimming the lights. You're not, you don't have those really bright fluorescent lights in your house, not looking at computer screens, TVs right before bed. I usually try and say like half an hour to 45 minutes and using the blue light blockers or the, the apps that are free to block, to block those. Do you use those? Yeah, I have um, one on my computer. I was just clicked on it to see like what the name of it is. Of course, it doesn't come up, but there are those that you can get for your phone, for your laptop. Like if I have to be on my laptop for something, I do it where it, like it just basically takes the blue light out of my screen. That's so right. everything glowing red, you know, I'll often wear my blue light blocker glasses. We've, you know, what we've started doing too is red light therapy at night yeah. to help us sleep. Um, better. And I've, I've noticed a difference from that, but there really is something to be said about the amount of artificial light and especially blue light that we're receiving before bed because it's suppressing the melatonin, you know, secretion and production. So that I find, you know, huge. And one of the other things I was going to say too, is eye mask. Like I, I find my, my eye mask is so essential. I love it too. Yeah. Yeah. And melatonin also like, and is more abundant when the temperature in the room is a little bit cooler, which again, you know, we're all talking about things that would be naturally mimicked in a really natural environment without the use of lights and computers and TVs and so forth. And of course, if we were living more in harmony with nature, uh, the temperature typically drops at night. So again, really like just thinking about it like that, like what can I do in my room to make my room just a little bit more natural, more harmonious with nature to put my body back in that natural state. Yeah, exactly. And coming up with a routine, I'm trying to teach my son this like really early, (laughs) like just, you know, walking him through a routine to, you know, calm his nervous system before bed. And like what, what I do personally, you know, I love having a shower because if I have a a hot shower and then my body will naturally cool afterwards. And I feel like that helps assist, you know, this process of like calming my body before bed and reading. I have so many dimmers in my house. Like I think dimmers are amazing and just like slowly bringing down the light um, to kind of mimic the sunset and yeah. And, and just trying to, you know, get into bed and read for a little bit, um, little things like that. But Again, I think it just goes back to routine and self-care and and finding what works for you. But I agree with you, like taking the devices, like the television and stuff like that, that sort of thing out of, out of the bedroom is so important. One of the other things I was going to say too, is, you know, beyond this balance of melatonin and cortisol and, and, you know, balance of those two hormones with sleep and, you know, beyond just feeling rested in the morning, there's so many things that happen while we sleep that influence all the other organs and, you know, like the endocrine system. um, That's so important, whether it's detoxification of excess estrogen or, you know, just neurotransmitters, like there's our bodies do so much healing while we sleep. You know, some people think that sleep is, you know, Oh, sleep, whatever. It's not, not important. It's so important to to our healing and the amount of sleep 
um, that you need can vary, right? Like I know some people who don't, you know, they don't need necessarily a lot of sleep. I'm someone, I need a lot of sleep. Like I'm talking at least eight to nine hours, nine hours, nine and a half hours sometimes like is ideal. Yeah. So again, I'm with you. I'd love, I, I need that amount right now with, with my two young boys, I still get up a lot overnight. Um, and it's just, I think to your point, ideally you get a good total of at least eight hours. Even if you are getting up interrupted, ideally your, your total really should be at least, at least eight hours for the average adult. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there may be many reasons why, like, you know, people are waking up at night. Uh, we kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, like it could be an issue with like blood sugar and like liver glycogen and, you know, your body not being able to utilize, um, those sugars in a fasting state, or it could be cortisol being out of whack. It could be numerous things. It could be issues falling asleep, right? Like there are people who have issues falling asleep and that's, you know, a melatonin, um, that can often be fixed with a little bit of melatonin. But again, it's looking at the individual, what is going on? What are the boulders, right? That, that are in place and, and really getting to the root cause. So sleep is definitely something I think we could do a whole episode on, but yeah, I would, if you're someone listening, who's struggling with sleep, definitely go see someone like myself or Emily, like a functional medicine doctor, a naturopathic doctor who can really help you get to that root, root cause of what's going on. Yes. And let's move on now to, to food and nourishment. So when it comes to balancing hormones, again, I feel like it's, you know, what we put into our bodies. We've talked a lot about what we put onto our bodies, but also what we put into our bodies can cause either, you know, things to go great or it can cause things to go haywire. So there's a lot of foods and you talk a lot about this in your book, um, about, you know, foods that help with hormonal balance and those that may hinder. Do you want to speak a little bit to this? Yeah. And, you know, this is a controversial topic because I know you and I both are big proponents of eating meat and eggs and raw dairy for that matter. Mm -hmm. And I know that doesn't sit well for everyone and that's okay. I do think, you know, for some, for some people having a vegetarian or vegan diet may be okay for them. But I, I would say that for the average patient I see until they do incorporate some really good quality animal protein, I don't see the hormonal balance adjust as quickly as when they would have animal product. And that I think is, there's multiple factors for that one. um, It's just such a good source of protein, but really what I call compatible protein. So it's a, it's the type of protein that's just very well absorbed by the body. And it's very, very rare. If I've still in my years of practice have yet to see a real allergy or sensitivity to animal products. Eggs is different and dairy is different, but to like beef, some people have trouble digesting it or they believe they do. But I think that's one thing when we're looking at hormonal balance, we also want to make sure that the digestion um, and the assimilation of nutrients is as good as it possibly can be making sure that we're having nutrient rich food, high in vitamins, high in good fats and high in good quality um, protein. 
which animal products do. And when I'm speaking, and I know you agree with me that when we're speaking about animal products, we're speaking about grass-fed, organic, pasture-raised, not your typical animal products that you found in the store, including dairy, the dairy ideally, I know we agree on, on raw dairy, which is not easy to come by, especially in places like Canada or parts of the States. Yeah, no, I'm in full agreement with you there. And it's actually been, I mean, again, I'm going to do another episode about this. <laughs> I feel like I've said that a couple of times now, but it's just because I feel like this idea of like balancing hormones is almost like an entry into so many different discussions. Yeah, and yeah. with this and the idea of like animal proteins being so amazing and beneficial for our bodies, it's only been a recent controversy <laughs> and yeah you know, and I actually don't even see it as a controversy. I think I see it more as like a difference of opinion. And there seems to be uh, this growing dis, I don't want to say, how do I say it? Like a growing discontent happening amongst like these different camps. One thing I will say is regardless, like I'm not going to tell anybody that they have to eat meat. That's their personal choice. Just like, I don't want anyone to tell me that I have to eat crickets, (laughs) you know, like it's, sure. it's my personal choice and to choose what I will say though, is that what I have seen in practice over a decade and what I've experienced in my own life, especially working with patients and fertility or any sort of hormonal imbalance is that when they add good quality, again, we're talking grass-fed pastured, like, you know, like beautiful <laughs> food. I'm not talking factory farming. I have issues with factory farming. I know you do too. Not talking about that. I'm talking about good quality whole food. When women are having trouble getting pregnant or balancing those hormones, when they add in sufficient amounts of protein, animal protein, and they're getting those fat soluble vitamins that are needed in order for their bodies to make the hormones And, you know, and even something like cholesterol, there's been so much talk about how cholesterol is so bad. And, you know, that's been disputed and dispelled. Like that myth has been dispelled since 2015. We now know that cholesterol is the basis for all of our steroid hormones. Mm -hmm. It's the basis, like it's the building blocks, not just for vitamin D, but for your progesterone and your estrogen and, and cortisol for that matter. So you know, and you get beautiful sources of that in, in pastured eggs and, and meat and dairy. So, you know, again, this is a much larger discussion and I'm sure there are people listening who perhaps have, you know, are vegan or plant-based. And again, I think plant-based means so many different things right now. I don't think there's, you know, there's a lot of people who eat meat who say that they're plant-based because they eat a lot of vegetables. So it's like, well, the majority of my diet is vegetables. Therefore I'm plant-based. So I think it can be really confusing where other people think plant-based means that they're vegan. So this is, I feel like, you know, it's a line or um, a minefield here, like when you're talking about nutrition, but put all of the nuances and the different labels and like all of that aside, and let's just get back to whole foods. And if you don't want to eat meat, but you still eat cheese or you'll have some eggs or you like some fish. Like I have friends who they, they don't want to eat red meat. That's cool. That's your choice. They will eat fish though. And they'll have some dairy. Amazing. They're still getting those fat soluble vitamins um, and, you know, bioavailable proteins. I do take issue with um, diets that are completely void of any of that. So strictly a vegan diet 
Um, I have yet to see uh, a person, I've, I've yet to see people in my practice or friends who are strictly vegan for long periods of time that do not end up with a hormonal imbalance or a mineral or vitamin deficiency. And I think to do a vegan diet, like a very strict vegan diet is very challenging. You have to supplement with the fat soluble vitamins and even some water soluble vitamins like B vitamins, et cetera, that you can only get from animal sources. So uh, I'm not saying it can't be done. Um, and if that's your choice, power to you. But I know that just from what I've seen, my clinical experience is that it can be very challenging and you will need to supplement. Yeah. And, and to that point, I think it furthers the issue when there, when there's external or environmental or any form of stress because eating and eating a really nourishing nutrient dense way helps to temper stress. But if mm-hmm. you're eating a diet that's devoid of some of these nutrients, that's lower in protein and vitamins and minerals that can further stress the body. hundred percent. It thinks it's starving. Yeah. It thinks it's starving. And then what happens is, you know, beyond the symptoms that arise from nutrient deficiencies, the metabolism slows down. Yes. You know, I experienced this like full disclosure. I mean, M, you remember when you first came yeah. to visit me here in Turks, I was vegan for a little while. Yeah. I tried it out. It ruined my gut. And it caused a hormonal imbalance. Uh, It also knocked out my immune system. It didn't work for me. Again, I'm not saying it can't work for some people. This is where the individuality, we have to like have respect for what, you know, what works for people. That's great. If it works for you, what I've seen in my clinical experience, my personal experience is it didn't work for me. And um, I was, you know, my body was depleted and, and starved of certain nutrients. My metabolism slowed down. I gained weight. And, yeah. you know, on top of that, I started to fast and I was doing intermittent fasting at first. I didn't know, like I didn't intentionally start <laughs> doing that. I just had lost my appetite for breakfast. I didn't, I wasn't hungry when I woke up and that's because my metabolism had started to slow down and, you know, intermittent fasting. Again, we might be walking on onto <laughs> another minefield here because it's such a big trend. However, the literature, like in the research, if you go look at the studies and at the time of this recording with this podcast, I have yet to see a study done where it benefits women who are menstruating. The studies that show that it's beneficial are done on men and postmenopausal women. So, you know, if you are a menstruating woman and you are doing intermittent fasting right now, and it seems to be helping you like, cause maybe you have a, a goal to lose weight or, you know, issues with blood sugar, I would argue that long-term it's not beneficial for the short term, depending again on the individual, I'm not going to say it's not necessarily a good thing or that you shouldn't do it. I just think a lot of these practices, the proof is in the pudding and you'll see long-term down the road. And I know for me and for many of my patients, intermittent fasting actually was detrimental. It caused a spike in cortisol because the body was stressed out caused issues with blood sugar and blood sugar regulation and how our bodies are about my body was basically breaking itself down. Like I would work out in a fasted state first thing in the morning and think I was doing something great to burn fat. And what I was actually doing was causing massive stress for my system and producing a shit ton of cortisol. And that was causing the actual, the opposite effect of what I was hoping, which was I was hoping to lose weight, but what I was doing was slowing down my metabolism, spiking my cortisol and causing myself to gain weight. So 
and it's really nuanced. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is it's really nuanced and you have to look at these dietary trends, whether it's, you know, veganism or intermittent fasting or cutting out whole food groups like carbohydrates and like, you know, doing keto and whatever. It's it's nuanced and you have to look at the individual and what's going on with their hormonal terrain before, you know, becoming super dogmatic and saying, well, this is the only way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And so I'd say like to kind of summarize what we've been talking about is we both agree that animal proteins are, as long as you can have good quality grass fed pastured are, you know, for, from what we've experienced and with our patients are, are often key to healing hormonal yeah. balance. They produce the building blocks. They produce yeah. the building blocks to the hormones, right. And yeah, the amino acids and everything that are needed obviously it kind of goes without saying taking out refined sugars, uh, packaged food, junk food, so forth. Uh, I think everyone kind of knows that, but really it is so true. And it's not that you can't never, ever have it if you go to a birthday party or so forth, but you know, like a 90% of the time, those should not even be in your house. Again, as you said, like focusing on real foods, which kind of focus on the good quality animal organic protein, healthy vegetables um, and fruits. And then, you know, having some healthy carbohydrates as well, which generally, I don't know about for you, but usually what I eat is sweet potatoes. I do have some white potatoes, um, a little bit of rice, quinoa, and I also really like buckwheat. Yeah. And again, I think this is like an individual thing, depending on how your body tolerates grains. I know folks with autoimmune conditions, you know, grains can be sticky subject and you have to really, or if you have any sort of gut healing, um, you know, that's going on, um, grains can be, and legumes and like lentils and all that sort of thing, nuts and seeds. Um, it really depends on the individual, uh, but whole foods in general, which include all of those are wonderful. And then again, it gets down to like, it's nuanced. And like, I know for my body, I thrive on, um, you know, meat and dairy, uh, which I never thought I would say, cause I avoided dairy and eggs and gluten for so long. And, um, it's actually now I've brought them back into my diet and I've, you know, healing my intestines and my body loves them. Um, so it's sometimes it's not like, like, yes, we want to focus on whole foods, but we also need to focus on the terrain and how we're absorbing and assimilating the food that we're eating. So it may not be that you have an issue with eggs or dairy. It may just be that you're having problems with your digestion. And once you work on healing your gut, you're able to eat those foods. That's what happened to me. Um, but I agree with you. It's, you know, let's focus on whole foods. There's a lot of greenwashing when it comes to processed foods. I notice this, especially like you know, with alternative diets, um, if you are cutting out like, you know, animal proteins or whatever, then a lot of the milks or the, the cheeses or the fake meats and things like that, like those are highly processed foods and they're very difficult. You have a lot of emulsif- um, emulsifiers and things like that, that are on preservatives that are in those. And I think that's, you know, a delicate balance with, with those things. Like if, If you cannot tolerate dairy and you're having an alternative, like a nut milk or an oat milk or something like that, um, I think just like be careful and watch it because they're not all created equal. Some of them are are really highly, highly processed. So I'm not, again, yeah, the person would notice that when the ingredients list often, there'd be a lot of additives and preservatives. So 
something to check to to if you if they can make their own that can be better but the other thing that you know again this could be another topic of food sensitivities and allergies i find that nuts and seeds when consumed in high amounts a lot of people over time develop sensitivities or allergic reactions to them so that's another thing just to be aware of i actually had a patient this morning with that and i it's been showing up more and more i think with the advent of more and more dairy alternative milks that people over time their bodies are saying like i would just simply aren't made to consume this much nuts yeah so, yeah, it's a huge topic. Nutrition is a massive topic. And I, I definitely, we will have to circle back another time yeah. to, to talk more. At the end of the day, like, listen, we're not bashing one particular diet or, or whatever. It's more that I'm concerned about nutrients and are you getting what you need in order to synthesize and create those hormones and create that hormonal balance and to nourish your body. And there are many ways to do that. but. I, I really think like, especially because of the work that we've both done with women and helping them with, you know, with their hormones, helping them get pregnant, all of these things. Often when it comes to food, women are malnourished and, you know, and, and a lot of that is because of diet culture and a lot of like the lies that people have been sold, uh, around, you know, even in the wellness community, there's a lot of food lies out there and it can be, like I said, a minefield for people and it can be really confusing. So um, at the end of the day, come back to what makes you feel good in your body, right? Totally. And trying to focus on whole foods, staying away from the processed foods and trying to get, you know, like those really great clean sources of protein and carbohydrates and fats. Yeah. So we'll have to leave it there with nutrition and move on, but we will come back in another episode and flesh that out a bit more, but let's move on to movement because I, again, I think this is kind of like piggybacking a little bit off of the nutrition with movement too little, I think is, you know, going to cause hormonal imbalance. That's when you get into like the areas of being sedentary, which can lead to weight gain and, you know, deconditioned body cardiovascular, you know, it's detrimental to cardiovascular health, et cetera, but also working out too much and, you know, working out really intensely causes such a massive cortisol spike right? Which again, goes back to the conversation about stress and how, you know, it can be one of those stressors that then is calling, causing an imbalance. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I'd say someone can really identify that if when they start working out, they notice that they just don't have the energy to work out anymore, or they feel so fatigued after working out. I mean, that's a sign that what you're doing when you're working out isn't good for your body. Like you said at the beginning, you know, our body's constantly giving us messages, talking to us, telling us and working out exercise should leave us feeling maybe a little sore sometimes, but feeling refreshed, good, ready for the day or ready for, you know, the rest of the evening. Um, but we shouldn't feel like we need a nap or the following day, we shouldn't feel completely like we had a night out all night long when all we did was go for, you know, a 60 minute run. So that's a sign again, that cortisol spiking too much. And I generally say for hormone balance, I sometimes take, I often take cardio out of the picture completely, unless it's, you know, a good walk. Um, but focusing on restorative exercises, stretching, yoga, Pilates, um, walking, lifting weights. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm a massive fan of weightlifting. I think, yeah. you know, 
having muscle on our bodies is like a life insurance plan. It's just yeah. like so good for so many things and, you know, like metabolism. Yes. But also immunity and just vitality, longevity, all of these things. Um, but I agree with you. I think, you know, the days of slugging it out for an hour on the treadmill or longer, like those are behind us, like, or please, can we put them behind yeah. us? Because I, I feel like, you know, it does, you know, it, yes, it burns calories in the moment. And if you're training for an event, like if you are a marathon runner or an endurance athlete, that's a different story. I'm talking about your regular person who's going to the gym, you know, a couple times a week or more and doing exercise to either potentially lose weight or just, you know, cause they, this is what they think they're supposed to do. And they get on the elliptical for 45 minutes and then leave. That may help you burn calories in the moment, but what is that metabolically doing? And to be honest, there are other things that you can do that are going to be more beneficial for hormonal balance and metabolic health. And when you lift weights, you are building lean body mass, which is metabolically active for 24 hours plus after that workout, right? Because you're you're tearing down, you're causing a little bit of, um, you know, tearing and stress in the muscle in order for it to build back up and build stronger. And, and that process, um, you know, it, it requires more calories. It requires more energy. Now, when I'm talking about weightlifting, I'm not saying going in there and like, you know, working out like Arnold Schwarzenegger necessarily. I think, you know, especially if you are new to weightlifting, I think, you know, hire a coach, go about it, make sure that you don't hurt yourself. But I think a lot of women are afraid of lifting weights. Um, and that makes me sad because it's like one of my favorite things. <laughs> and I think it's so great for our metabolic health, for, you know, just overall hormonal health, for immunity, et cetera. And yes, then you partner that with things like yoga, um, Pilates, uh, that, you know, are strengthening and lengthening muscles but also are causing mindfulness and like so many other beautiful benefits, like the flexibility. Yes. But, um, there's just like the state I find when I do yoga regularly, I'm just calmer, <laughs> like in general, which again, goes back to flattening the cortisol curve and like, you know, keeping, well, not flattening it, but you know what I mean? Bringing it back into balance. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think, walking also is completely underrated. Um, it is such an amazing, you know, just getting those steps in, um, going for a walk again, there's many other benefits. It's like, if you can walk in nature or you walking and talking with a friend or like, you know, there's so many benefits to walking. So if you're looking at movement for hormonal balance, I guess what we're agreeing on and what we're saying here is it's more moderate intensity to low intensity. If you are someone with, you know, suspecting that you have a hormonal imbalance, your high intensity, like the HIIT workouts or long bouts of cardio may not be what's great for you right now. It doesn't mean that, you know, uh, you know, training for that marathon or doing HIIT workouts or in that spin class are off, off, um, you know, off limits forever. You can come back to them. But if you are in a state of like adrenal fatigue uh, or, you know, really painful periods, et cetera. It's just like, just pulling it back and listening to your body. So I'm going to use that as a segue into cyclical living, because another part of this, especially with movement and even just like all of the lifestyle stuff, I think getting back into sync with our cycles 
and caring for ourselves because our needs are different at different points in our cycles. That is so important. And I remember when I started working out in alignment with my cycle. So what I mean by that is like at different points in my cycle, because my hormones are, are, they fluctuate, like our hormones fluctuate throughout our cycle. We're able to, we have a greater capacity for, you know, aerobic exercise or strength exercises. And so when I started fine tuning and tailoring the exercise that I was doing, depending on where I was in my menstrual cycle, that made a huge difference for me. And I know that, you know, my patients find that as well. The women in the nest, I, we talk about it all the time. Like, you know, it's that, that's a really big deal because you cannot, you can't go balls out the whole cycle as if, you know, and what I mean by that is like when you're menstruating, your, you know, your energy is lower, your capacity for, you know, lifting heavy weights that may be diminished. But as your estrogen and your testosterone begin to rise in your follicular phase and you move towards ovulation, you have more energy. You're able, your output can be greater. And then after you ovulate and, you know, estrogen, testosterone decline, but then progesterone kind of takes over, that's when we may be a little bit more fatigued or we we need to pull back and, you know, and prepare again to enter into menstruation. So there's this ebb and flow of energy that just happens naturally because of the orchestra of hormones. Right. And so to have this expectation that I have to perform the same at the same intensity or have the same output every time I go to the gym, that's just, that's unrealistic for us. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. And when I think of cycles, I not only think of the menstrual cycle, but I think of the daily cycle. So like, you know, we mentioned before, you know, going in, in not working out in the evening, that cycle is, you know, the cycle of the day is winding down and you should be too. And then also the cycles of the, of the months. And that's, you know, can be nuanced with how you eat um, and changes in your bedtime routine, changing at different hours, but, you know, in the winter time, going to bed a little bit earlier, waking up a little bit earlier. So I see like the cycle of the menstruation, but also the cycle of the months and the cycle of the day. A hundred percent. And there's, I'm actually doing another episode about this. Like it was all about cyclical living, um, where we talk about that. Like it's, you know, there's this circadian rhythm, but there's also the infradian rhythm, right? Like our circadian rhythm is the 24 hour day, which is governed by the sun. However, there's the infradian rhythm, which is a 28 to 29 day cycle, which is governed by the moon and, you know, how that influences us, especially our female bodies. So there's so much more to this. Um, I know that like we've reached the end of our time together. Yes. I know you have to go. I feel like this is like, we're just getting started and there's so many offshoots from this conversation for those yes. listening. We would love to hear if you want to know more about a specific subject, please send me an email, send me a message, jump on Instagram, uh, let me know. But um, I will put how people can contact you and work with you, how they can get in touch with you, uh, either on Instagram or check out your book in the show notes below. But thank you so much for joining me and having this discussion. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Nest Podcast. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at drmariskataylornd, as well as visit my website at drmariskataylor.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you again next time.